Well, you can take your Bibles and please turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Again, a warm welcome to everyone. And as I look out, there are a few unfamiliar faces, visitors, I assume. And so again, a warm welcome to you. You've seen this slide before, most of you, right? I've, I've shown it at least a couple of times, not recently, but at least a couple of times over the past five or six months. If you happen to watch any of the videos on the church website, I think this is in the intro, this slide. I'm pretty sure it is anyway. Uh, there's the book we're studying, 1 Corinthians. And there is the title for this series of studies, True Spirituality. So the title isn't spirituality, but true spirituality. True, obviously, as opposed to what? Good. Clever bunch this morning. False spirituality. There is a problem in the church at Corinth. The church is plagued with, I don't know how many, false notions of spirituality. Uh, some people think uh, to be spiritual is to latch onto some kind of human leader and follow him around and do whatever he says. Uh, some think that true spirituality is found in practicing Christian libertinism and indulging in sin, blatant sin. Uh, some are at the opposite spectrum, end of the spectrum. They think true spirituality is found in abstinence, asceticism, a real rigid and austere life existence. Uh, some think in the church at Corinth that spirituality is linked to spiritual gifts, the more spectacular and inexplicable, the better, and on and on and on it goes. The church is plagued with many false notions of spirituality. And Paul's great ambition in this letter is to correct their thinking and to put before them true spirituality. So Teresa is going to bring up another slide. She's going to help me out here for the, this intro anyway. And a really important verse. We're almost there. We're getting there. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is found right at the end of chapter 12, verse 31. And so we go, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 1, he sort of starts down here and he builds and he builds and he builds and he builds. And then finally he seems to reach the top of the mountain. And in verse 31 of chapter 12, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way because you've not been on the excellent way. You've actually been on a false way when it comes to all of these silly notions of spirituality. I have been correcting you. I have been admonishing you. And now I'm going to make it plain that there is a more excellent way. And the way is what? True spirituality. The pinnacle of the epistle will be there in a few weeks. Chapter 13, love. And there we have perhaps one of the greatest, would we all agree with that? Perhaps one of the greatest portions in all of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul's beautiful, poetic almost, description of love. What he is putting forth as true spirituality, the more excellent way. 
We've seen that this kind of love, he says back in chapter 8, verse 1, builds up. He's going to say something very similar in chapter 14, verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. And so this is the more excellent way, my Corinthian friends, brothers and sisters, you're not following the more excellent way. You're not characterized by love and therefore you're not building one another up. Rather, you're chasing this, you're chasing that, you're pursuing this, you're pursuing that. Thinking that these things make you spiritual. No, here is the more excellent way. And so if Teresa would bring up the next slide, here it is. The epistle, I think, in its entirety, uh, how we can explain this Corinthian chaos, the state in which the church at Corinth finds itself. Here's the starting point. They do not grasp their identity in Christ. They've forgotten what it means to be a Christian. They've forgotten that the Lord Jesus has died for them. Uh, they've forgotten the fact that the Lord Jesus has risen again for them. When we believe in the Lord Jesus, we become one with him. Therefore, his dying and his rising become ours. God reckons them to us. He imputes them to us. That's our identity. We are dead and we are alive in Christ. That is our position. That being our position, we're now to live out our Christ identity the Corinthians have lost sight of this great truth. They've lost sight of the heartbeat of the gospel. And as a result, therefore, they are not following the more excellent way. Love, as described in chapter 13. One's going down this road. One's going down that road. One's going down another road. And as a result, they are not building up one another. As a matter of fact, on the contrary, they're actually tearing one another down. One more slide. That helps us make sense then of chapters 10 through 14. Because what Paul is doing in these chapters is giving us examples, or rather giving the church at Corinth examples of how they're tearing one another down. He's giving them living, breathing examples that testify to the fact that they're not on the more excellent way. Because if they were on the more excellent way, love builds up. They'd be building one another up, not tearing one another down. But here's the problem. When it comes to joining in pagan feasts, they're doing whatever they want. And they're tearing one another down. When it comes to eating sacrificial food, again, some aren't thinking of their brothers and sisters. All they're thinking about is what they want. Well, that isn't love that builds up. They're tearing down. They're not on the more excellent way. When it comes to upholding headship, this is where we were last week. And just by the way, I got a lot of good feedback on that sermon last week. <laughs> just have to stop and say, I'm shocked. Actually, very shocked. But I'll take it. Praise the Lord. Anyway, when it comes to upholding headship, they're not on the more excellent way. They're not building one another up. They're tearing one another down. They're just doing whatever they want. When it comes to celebrating the Lord's Supper, our text for today, what's going on? Again, when they gather for what they think is the Lord's Supper, Paul says, it's not really the Lord's Supper. You're celebrating the Lord's Supper not for the better, but for the worse, because you're not on the more excellent 
way. When it comes to using spiritual gifts, they're flaunting their gifts. Look at me. It's all about me. Paul, that's not the more excellent way. No, you're tearing down rather than building up. When it comes to speaking in tongues, again, they're flaunting it. They've made, they've personalized it. They've turned it into a badge of spirituality. And Paul says, that's not true spirituality. That's false spirituality. True spirituality loves. And if you loved one another, you would be building one another up. And how you use the gift of tongues, how you use your spiritual gifts, how you celebrate the Lord's Supper, it would evidence this desire to edify. And then lastly, he's going to give one more example when we get to chapter 14, participating in public worship. Again, their great desire, their heartbeat, their impulse is not, hey, what's for my brother's good? Hey, what's in the best interest of my sister? No, their heartbeat, their impulse is this. I'll jolly well do whatever I want to do. It's all about me. And it's all about me being spiritual and attaching my spirituality to all these things. And Paul's point in the entire epistle is this. Hang on a second. You've got it completely backwards, upside down and inside out and just making a mess of it. That is false spirituality. I can identify false spirituality from miles away. It's easy to see it coming. It doesn't build up. It's not about edifying. It's not about what's in his interest, her interest. It's not what's in the best interest for the local church. It's not what's in the best interest for the people of God. It's always about me. What is in my best interest? And Paul's point is simply this. No, true spirituality, authentic spirituality, biblical spirituality is the living out of our identity in Christ. And the great mark of that identity will be love. And the great mark of love will be Building up. Oh, brothers and sisters at Corinth, that's not what you're doing. And it is plainly evident in that example right there, the fourth one, in your celebration of the Lord's Supper, to which we now turn our attention. Teresa, you can take the slides away. I've got no more for you. You're with me now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you're following along as I begin reading in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. The celebration of the Lord's Supper. Notice a phrase that is used five or six times. Let's see if I can pick them out now. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you, this is the phrase I'm talking about, you come together. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, opening statement, when you come together. And I know there are a couple more as I glance down over the page. I think toward the end. Yep, there it is. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together. And the last in verse 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together. When you come together. When you come together as a church. Come together as a church for what purpose? What is in view here is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And Paul has three things to say to them. Firstly, he rebukes them. He rebukes them openly, rebukes them. Because their coming together is for the worse, for the worse. We see this in verses 17 through 22. The verses are a unit. They're like parentheses. There are bookends. Look at what he says at the start of verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Look at verse 22 right at the end. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So that word commend, that verb provides the bookends, the parentheses around this unit, this section. And Paul is making it clear that when they come together, when they gather for the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul, on the basis of what he has heard, he is less than impressed. Will I commend you for your gatherings together and how you celebrate and how the Lord's Supper is held in such high regard and esteem? No, I will not. I do not commend you. On the contrary, I rebuke you. Why? Pick it up in verse 17. Because when you come together, it is not for the better. You don't come together to edify. 
Your coming together is not an expression of love. Your coming together is not an expression of the more excellent way. But when you come together, it is actually for the worse, tearing one another down. Why, Paul? What do you mean? Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He is not speaking of doctrinal or theological divisions. He is not referring to those divisions that he mentioned way back in the first chapter, first couple of chapters. Remember there, he identified that there are divisions in the church at Corinth because some are following Cephas, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos. And so there are these these factions, if you like, in the church. Those aren't the factions or schisms or divisions that are in view here. What Paul has in mind here is a social division. And let me explain it for you the best I can. In that day, city of Corinth, for example, social status was everything. And if you wanted to declare and make plain and evident evident for everyone else, your social status, what was one of the most effective ways of doing that? It was to put on a meal. And on the basis of whom you invited to that meal and what you fed people at that meal, you were making a public statement as to where you viewed yourself on the, that rung on the ladder as you sought upward mobility within that society. Some in the church of Corinth had turned the Lord's Supper into that kind of meal. The wealthy in particular. They were gathering early or they were gathering separately, they were enjoying a lavish meal, and the have-nots, those much further down on the social ladder, maybe not even on the ladder, can't even reach high enough to grab the bottom rung, they're being left out of that meal. And this is what the Lord's Supper had become. It had become a celebration enjoyed by the elite. And in doing this, Paul says what in verse 22? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not commend you in this. And Paul is going to get rough with them. Because of their evident lack of love, their evident lack of concern, their evident lack of concern for their brother's good, whereby they had taken that which was holy, the Lord's Supper itself, and in effect profaned it because they had turned it into a self-serving exercise, whereby they got together for this meal, flaunted their wealth, Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. This is the way you are behaving. And put it in the context of the whole, the letter as a whole. This is not the more excellent way. This is not 1 Corinthians 13 in action. This is not a love that builds up. You are tearing one another down. The second thing Paul says is this. 
he explains, he makes it clear why they ought to come together. And so what should motivate them? And so he's entered the realm of the heart here. Desires, goals, aspirations, intentions. And he unpacks this beginning in verse 23. I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And here he recounts the last supper, the night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed. And what happened, verse 24, when he had given thanks for the bread, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in stark, subtle contrast with what motivates you when you come together to celebrate what you think is the Lord's Supper, but really isn't the Lord's Supper, here's what should motivate you. Firstly, you should come together to remember Christ's death. He states it twice as he cites the words of the Lord Jesus himself. At the end of verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. At the end of verse 25, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we come together for the Lord's Supper. First Sunday of every month here at Grace Community Church. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we pass around those little wafers, the bread. And we take it and we eat it and we recognize as the Lord Jesus Christ himself teaches us that this bread speaks of his body. This is my body, verse 24, which is for you. A body offered as a sin-bearing sacrifice. Listen to Peter's words. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Christ himself bore, took our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So when we partake of that bread, we are remembering. We are remembering the crucifixion. We are remembering the body of the Lord Jesus. We are remembering that as the Lord Jesus hung upon Calvary's cross, God imputed my sin to him. He took my sin, all of my sins upon himself. They were imputed to him, counted to him, reckoned to him upon Calvary's cross. And not only did he therefore bear the weight of my sin but he bore the justice of God due to me for my sin. Oh, we remember. And then we take that cup, do we not? When we celebrate the Lord's Supper and it speaks of his blood, verse 25, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Blood shed, spilled, poured out. For our redemption. Paul writes in Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace. Uh, we remember. 
that Christ, and my friend, I pray you understand this, you embrace it for all your worth, and you hold on to this as the dearest truth known to man, the pearl of great price for which it, we sell and abandon everything. Christ delivers us from judgment by suffering judgment. That's what we remember in the Lord's Supper. He releases us, frees us, delivers us from judgment by suffering judgment. He, deliver us, he delivers us from death by tasting death. He delivers us from sin by being made sin. He delivers us from the curse by being made a curse. Do you know it? Right? As I just look out here right now, here we are, this audience, this group, this gathering. Do you know it? Do you believe it? Uh, here is the starting point for all wisdom. Here's the foundation for meaning in life and joy and satisfaction. Here is the hope of eternal life. Here is the defining truth that makes sense of reality, history of everything. God is holy. We are not. We are sinful. But the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave himself up on behalf of sinners upon Calvary's cross. That whosoever, whoever among men would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember. Not only do we remember, but secondly, we proclaim little statement right there at the end of verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim it. The Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim it to the world. It's a public proclamation testimony as to who we are and what we believe. I think even more importantly, a far greater significance, we proclaim it to one another. That as that cup makes its way around, weaves from row to row on a Sunday morning, and as we take that bread corporately and we eat it, we are proclaiming to one another. We're proclaiming to the person sitting beside us. We're proclaiming to those in front of us, behind us. We're proclaiming collectively to us as a, as a church, Grace Community Church, exactly who we are, what we believe, and in whom we hope. That's why the church at Corinth should be coming together, to remember Christ's death and to proclaim Christ's death. And now Paul says thirdly to them, explains how they ought to come together. He's rebuked them because their coming together is for the worse. He has now explained how they ought to come together, what should motivate them. And now he explains exactly how they ought to come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we find this description in verses 27 through 34, and let me break it down for you in four statements. So as the church of Corinth, it's Friday, or maybe it's Saturday, they're going to get together some point on Sunday, and as they come together as the church, they're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and Paul's point is this, look, Friday, Saturday, I don't know, Sunday morning, but before you get together, here's how you should prepare. Here are four things you must do. Number one, we must examine ourselves. 
Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let me explain what this doesn't mean. Because far too often what it doesn't mean is what a lot of people think it does mean. And it's reinforced oftentimes when people celebrate the Lord's Supper. Many people just read these verses, lift them out of the chapter, lift them out of the book, lift them out of their context. And what do they conclude? They conclude, I'm supposed to peer into my heart on a Sunday morning. And I'm supposed to identify absolutely every sin, every wrongdoing, every ill I've ever done, evaluate how my week has gone, take stock. And if there's anything in me, well, I dare not participate of the Lord's Supper because that would be to participate in an unworthy manner. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to proceed on an assumption which I know to be true that is in all likelihood how the vast majority of us understand this text. It's not what Paul's talking about. It's not at all what Paul is saying. What is the context? He's already identified the problem in the church at Corinth. What is the problem? They're not walking on the more excellent way. Therefore, they are not loving one another. Therefore, they don't desire to build one another up. They're actually tearing one another down. Therefore, when they get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. And they're reinforcing these social distinctions. And some have turned the Lord's Supper into this, this meal in which they reinforce these social distinctions. Paul is now commanding them to do what? Examine themselves in that context. If that's you. Snap out of it. That's what Paul is saying. Before you celebrate the Lord's Supper, if that is how you've been functioning, if that is how you have been operating, if that is how you have been despising your brothers and sisters and actually publicly humiliating them by carrying on like this, just a little elite, some of you getting together beforehand or some of you meet over in that room while the unwashed masses meet in this room, if that's the way you're carrying on, then please, 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 before you get together, come together again for the Lord's Supper, please examine yourself and make sure you're not part Taking in an unworthy manner, thereby being guilty and profaning the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the context closely related to it. He exhorts them to discern the body. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What body? Is this in the context and in light of what is coming, certainly in chapter 12, it is the body of Christ. Yes, that much is clear. Which body? I don't think it is his physical body. It is what? His spiritual body. It is the church. They are to discern the church. They have not been discerning the church when they come together, it is a self-serving function. No, my friends, before you come together, discern the body and understand that the Lord Jesus, by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, has created a community. He has created a church. The gathering of the local church is the gathering of a local expression of the body of Christ in one spirit. 
We were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. The problem with some in the church at Corinth was this. They were treating the church as something less than what it is. They were not discerning the body. The significance of the local church. The body of Christ wasn't even on their radar. The Lord's Supper was a self-serving purpose. The people of God, they're there for their own pick them up, drop them, whatever, serving their own ends because they were not on the more excellent way. The church is the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. It is the dwelling place of almighty God. And before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we should sit there and we should give that a little thought what it means to be part of the body of Christ and discern the body and partake of the Lord's Supper as a community of believers. And then thirdly, he exhorts them to do what? Judge themselves. Verse 30. That is why many of you, this has happened in the church at Corinth. It's so grievous. Look at what's happened there. Many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. You think God is mocked is in effect what Paul is saying. He's not mocked. This is deplorable the way you're conducting yourselves. We better judge ourselves. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Oh, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. It's not condemnation. We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I think in effect, you're simply saying this when we come together. Yes, we recognize that we're sinners in need of forgiveness. We look to God afresh for the forgiveness of sins through Christ. And we discern that we are part of a community consisting of all those who believe in Christ. And each is precious in the sight of God. The Corinthians have lost sight of that. Some of the Corinthians have lost sight of that. And they have lost sight of it to such a degree that their conduct is absolutely deplorable. And they have invited the discipline of the Lord upon them. And it is why in verse 30, some are weak, some are ill, and some have even died. Fourth thing they are to do is this. They're to wait for one another. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, eat at home. So that when you come together... It will not be for judgment. What's he saying there? He's simply saying this. Look, <laughs> as you ready yourself to come together, just get over yourself for a couple of minutes. All right. Get your eyes off yourself just for a little bit and ask yourself simply this. How will this coming together be for the benefit of others? The good of others. Oh, for Paul, that is the more excellent way. Because it is love and it is love itself that builds up. There's the text. Let me give you five points of application quickly. The next time we gather for the Lord's Supper, first Sunday in April, it will be. Here is what I expect each of us to do on Saturday evening. All right? I'll be calling around to make sure everyone is abiding by these five points. As we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, even in 
our participation at the Lord's Supper. Here are five things that ought to be on our minds as they emerge from this text. The first is as follows. The Lord's Supper, as we prepare for it and participate in it, reminds us of Christ's finished work. We do this in remembrance of him, and we do this to proclaim our remembrance of him one to another. Why do we do that? To build one another up. It reminds us of Christ's finished work. It reminds us that we celebrate the fact that Christ has drained the cup of God's wrath. Oh, we need to never lose sight of that. The Lord's Supper is just this, this, this visible display of this essential truth that upon Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus drank the last drop from that cup of God's wrath. And cousins, in one of her hymns, stated it so well. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this hymn. Perhaps some of you aren't. And I'm sure I have quoted from it here on more than one occasion over the years. But here it is again. Oh, please hear these words. Believer, unbeliever alike, hear these words. Death and the curse were in our cup. Oh, Christ was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up, left but the love for me. She goes on to write, Jehovah lifted up his rod, O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast forsaken of thy God. No distance now for me. Thy blood beneath that rod has flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. That's why we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is a powerful reminder of Christ's finished work. Secondly, as we prepare and as we participate, we're reminded of the fact that Christ is in our midst. He comes to us by his own appointed means. The fact that he disciplines some in the church at Corinth because of the way in which they're making a mess of the Lord's Supper is a, is a reminder of the fact that he walks in the midst of the churches. He walks in the midst of this church and he observes and he watches and he comes to us through the means of grace. He comes to us through the preaching of the word. He comes to us through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. If we want to get in touch with God, we don't need to go off on retreats. We don't need to go to great celebrations. We don't need to go to the next conference. We just need to avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace, which in actual fact are quite extraordinary because it is through these means that Christ comes and the grace of Christ comes and Christ communes and fellowships with his people. And so we remind ourselves of this at the supper that Jesus Christ himself is in our midst. Thirdly, as we prepare and as we participate, we remind ourselves that discipline awaits those whose lives remain unchanged. I know it is unthinkable for many in our day, absolutely unimaginable, but here it is 
the text verifies it. God does discipline his people. He disciplines them. It is not for the purpose of condemnation. It is for the purpose of correction. And we're reminded of that when we partake of the Lord's Supper. That forgiveness in Christ is our only hope of acceptance. Oh, but this does not mean that God turns a blind eye to our grievous sin. This does not mean that God allows his children, permits them to carry on their merry way, indulging this or indulging that. No, he disciplines those whom he loves. And how we must remind ourselves of that as we gather for the Lord's Supper. Fourthly, it reminds us that we belong to a covenant community. The Lord's Supper happens within the congregational life of the church. It isn't individualistic. So should you celebrate the Lord's Supper on your own? No. Defeats the purpose. Is it something I can just do whenever I feel like it? Just gather a few people? No. It defeats the purpose. It is a church celebration. It is a celebration of the body. It is the body gathering, coming together corporately, collectively, because much of what is being proclaimed at the Lord's Supper is the very fact that we are a community of faith, a local expression of the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper, some of us might need to hear this. The Lord's Supper is not in the first place about our personal relationship with Jesus. It isn't about what it does for us. The Lord's Supper in the first place is a visible reality and a public declaration of the fact that we belong to a body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are one with one another in that body. Oh, how we must remember this. We belong to a covenant community. And fifthly, as we prepare and as we participate, it reminds us, the Lord's Supper, that there is, in the context of the whole, a more excellent way. There is a more excellent way. And that way is love. And it is a love easy to identify, easy to notice and observe, because it is a love that builds up. When we come together for the Lord's Supper, the bread is common. We all eat it. The cup is common. We all drink it. And this represents the fact that in Christ we have all things in common. Do we renounce following the more excellent way? Do we renounce anything that divides the church? Do we seek to edify the church? Do we love the church. One contemporary preacher wrote the following. The church is made up of natural enemies. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Grace Community Church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common ethnicity, Common income levels, common politics, common nationality, 
common accents, common jobs, common child-rearing philosophies, common social causes, common views on immigration, common tastes, common music preferences, or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. We are declaring that whenever we participate of the Lord's Supper. And for the Apostle Paul, this is part and parcel of the more excellent way. Our Heavenly Father, we pray by the Spirit of God, you would take now these truths and impress them deep within the heart of each one here, commensurate with every individual need represented in this room. We do pray for a powerful working of your spirit in and by your word for your people that we might be more like the Lord Jesus and for unbelievers in our midst that the scales of their eyes might be removed that the callous upon their hardened hearts might be softened and that they might indeed see your excellencies in Christ Jesus and understand that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we can and must be saved. We ask it all now for his glory and in his matchless name. Amen. <laughs>